0: Congress is in the process of reauthorizing the medical device user fee amendments, which permit the FDA to collect user fees from device manufacturers to facilitate pre-marketing review and oversight. The final proposal comes after contentious negotiations between the medical device industry and the FDA on the focus and the components of the program. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Vinay Rathi, a Chief Resident at Massachusetts Eye and Ear. Dr. Rathi has co-authored a perspective article about medical device user fee reauthorization. Dr. Rathi, can you explain how the user fee program works? What are the basic components of the agreement between the FDA and device manufacturers, and how much money is involved?
1: The user fee program for medical devices began back in 2002, and it's modeled off a similar program that exists for prescription drugs beforehand. And what happens is it's basically a pact between manufacturers and the FDA, where manufacturers agree to pay a fee to both apply for marketing and then also to register as establishments with the FDA, and in return for those fees, the FDA commits to reviewing applications within a certain time period with the understanding that those fees will be used to hire, train staff that perform the reviews and also carry out other agency operations.
0: So how is the FDA's process for reviewing medical devices similar to or different from its process for reviewing drugs?
1: Generally speaking, the regulatory standards for devices are a bit more permissive than they are for drugs. So for drugs, typically it's safety and efficacy and that's generally proven by two randomized control pivotal clinical trials or phase 3 trials. Whereas for devices the standard is safety and effectiveness, which means that the device needs to work as an intended and for that Typically, only one pivotal trial, typically a smaller trial, is ultimately required for clinical assurance. So in general, there are exceptions here because not all devices are classified as high risk and even require clinical evidence for approval. But in general, it's more permissive for devices than it is for drugs.
0: So you write in your perspective article that heading into this latest round of user fee reauthorization, the industry and the FDA had different views on the program's future. So where were the conflicts?
1: Well, there are a couple areas of contention. The first being sort of the overall focus of what this reauthorization would kind of tackle. And because of issues with the COVID pandemic, industry was very concerned about agency review times being slowed because of the vast number of submissions related to COVID. Then on the flip side, the FDA was more focused on a broader improvement of device regulation and with a focus on things like post market safety and surveillance. And so Industry really wanted to go what they call back to bases, which is sort of what the original agreement in 2002 was about, which was ensuring more reliable and speedy review times, whereas the FDA was thinking about a lot of the complementary issues around the edge. And because of that, the FDA was asking for a greater financial commitment from industry, whereas industry wanted to limit their financial exposure and, and really focus on getting devices to market faster.
0: So then what ended up in the reauthorization legislation? It's a
1: compromise insofar as the funding levels that are going to be appropriated are much higher than past agreements. So in the last agreement, something like $1.2 billion will be collected by the FDA, whereas the projected collections between 2023 and 27 will be more in the neighborhood of $1.8 to $9 billion. And so the FDA has committed to goals that are satisfactory into industry, and then industry has kind of added some incentives. If the FDA meets certain goals, they're willing to increase the amount of funding that they'll give to the FDA. But on the flip side, if the FDA doesn't spend its carryover balance that it has after it collects user fees appropriately, or if the FDA misses hiring targets, for instance, for review staff, then industry would seek to claw back those funds by reducing the fees that manufacturers have to pay to register with the FDA every year. And so it's sort of a compromise built around incentives. And what we explore in the piece is sort of how well-intended incentives might ultimately cause more problems than they're intended to solve.
0: Right. So in that regard, what components do you see in this legislation that could negatively affect the FDA's performance and could affect patient safety?
1: Well, there's a couple of issues that we took with it. The first is that clawing back funds from the FDA, it makes perhaps some common sense from an accountability perspective, but We think that would only compound the problems that the FDA might have in terms of hiring staff and retaining them. As you know, the technically skilled folks that review these applications have other opportunities, or the managerial staff have other opportunities in academia or industry, for instance. And so it's important that the FDA is adequately resourced to keep those staff and improve performance. The other thing is that if the FDA feels that it's going to be on the hook to spend money at a certain rate or If the FDA feels that it needs to meet certain deadlines or it'll miss funding opportunities, you know, that could lead to two outcomes that neither side want. One is that, you know, and there's evidence for this on the drug side, if folks are getting close to review deadline, they may make a potentially rushed decision for a device that is ultimately proven to be unsafe or ineffective. The flip side is that they may seek to sort of kick the can down the road by asking device companies questions that suspend the review clock, which would ultimately delay the real world clock for getting a device to market. And that's something that might be of concern to industry. Another issue that we took with it is that there's a real issue right now around how new technologies are reimbursed. People see that as a very big barrier to investment in medical technologies and commercialization of devices. And so there's a program that the FDA fought very hard to include called the Total Product Lifecycle Advisory Committee, where they really wanted to bring in input from other stakeholders who are important to more than just the approval process itself, but also things like the reimbursement process and bring in public and private payers to give their input on clinical trial design to help ultimately facilitate when devices get covered and not just approved. And the way that the program was structured is that the FDA can only start in one sort of device area and has to do it on a first come first serve basis. And we think that's really going to handicap what could be a transformative program for the FDA industry, because we really think the FDA ought to have latitude to pick the devices that are going to serve as the best use cases to make those kinds of advancements in regulatory science. And so we think the FDA ought to have more discretion there in terms of picking promising technologies to test this reimbursement problem. The last thing I'll say is, we felt that there was not enough of an emphasis on post-market safety and surveillance. And that has been a significant issue in recent years, despite steps that the agency is trying to take to actively identify problems and communicate them to patients and physicians. And so um, the FDA had, in during negotiations with industry, which as you mentioned, were very contentious, asked for funding to do things like improve their analytics and create a Patient friendly repository of device safety information. That was ultimately all axed from the final agreement. And so we think the FDA ought to be authorized to use some of the fees they get from manufacturers, not just to enhance pre market review and get devices to market faster, but also to ensure on the back end that they're performing as intended and we're not putting any patients in
0: harm's way. So finally, and expanding on what you just said, what reforms could be made to medical device regulation more broadly to? promote both safety and innovation, so to satisfy both sides of that balance?
1: Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I would say that on the front end, the way that we are identifying promising technologies and then subsequently making sure that they receive adequate agency attention before they reach the market and then patients, physicians, and payers are bought in could really be streamlined. And so for that reason, we really do welcome input from, for instance, payers like CMS early on to help decide what clinical trials design are going to demonstrate that there is effectiveness to support a case for reimbursement and expedite that process once devices are cleared. So CMS already has programs where they review devices in parallel with the FDA and can issue coverage decisions at the same time as the FDA issues marketing authorization. Other program that CMS has that could be more broadly implemented is called coverage with evidence development, where devices are paid for as long as patients are enrolled in clinical trials. And so you could imagine how the design of that is set up in advance. Device manufacturers could be conducting required post-approval studies at the same time as they're receiving reimbursement and generating evidence that's ultimately going to help satisfy CMS's statutory needs to reimburse the device. And then with the total product lifecycle advisory program, that's where private payers would come into the fold as well. And so there's a lot of opportunity to streamline the requirements of both the FDA and then payers upfront with some input from patients as well. On the back end, there's been a lot of issues getting our surveillance framework up to snuff. There's understaffing of the FDA's post-market surveillance system and underreporting of adverse events because folks don't know how to do it or they can't link devices to events or they don't adequately identify devices as when they write about post-market events and submit that to the FDA. And so I think we need to be more actively involved in the collection of data. And for that reason, the FDA as part of a prior authorization had included something called a unique device identifier, which would allow devices to be tracked through claims. And health systems have been really slow to adopt that. And then learning how to work with that data has also been challenging as one might imagine with issues related to standardization and things like that. And so. I think creating that foundational knowledge and creating the data by promoting adoption of these unique device identifiers is going to allow us to take a much more proactive approach than we have historically done, relying on adverse events to sort of pile up until someone says, okay, there's a problem.
0: Thank you, Dr. Rathi.